Let's see, first reading is Luke 1, 57 to 66, the birth of John the Baptist. When it was time for Elizabeth to have her baby, she gave birth to a son. Her neighbours and relatives heard that the Lord had shown her great mercy, and they shared her joy. On the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child, and they were going to name him after his father Zechariah. But his mother spoke up and said, No, he is to be called John. They said to her, There is no one among your relatives who has that name. Then they made signs to his father to find out what he would like to name the child. He asked for a writing tablet, and to everyone's astonishment he wrote, His name is John. Immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed, and he began to speak, praising God. The neighbours were all filled with awe, and throughout the hill country of Judea, people were talking about all these things. Everyone who heard this wondered about it, asking, What then is this child going to be? For the Lord's hand was with him. Language of Zion, and you wonder what that means to people who aren't really aware of what the power and the penalty of sin might be. Salvation used in a very this-worldly sense and in a very other-worldly sense. Zechariah, in his celebratory prophecy after he gets his voice back and his son born, makes three references to salvation. In Luke chapter 1, verse 69, he says that God has raised up a horn of salvation for his people in the house of his servant David. A horn is a symbol of strength and power. He's basically saying that God has come to save his people. In verse 71, he mentions salvation again. This time it's salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. That is Clearly a reference to salvation in the commonly understood secular sense of being rescued from trouble and difficulty. And then in verse 77, he talks about John the Baptist giving the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of sins. And, and that is the, the, quite the religious understanding of salvation. Now there are people who spend a lot of time, maybe too much time, poring over texts like this. And some of them argue that you should split Zechariah's song into two parts. In the first part, verses 68 to 75, you have a declaration of praise to God. God has saved his people through the house of David. This is a celebration of the long-standing hope that God would send the Messiah, the son of David, in fulfillment of his promises to Abraham and in faithfulness to his covenant to save and rescue his people. This is the Jewish hope being fulfilled and celebrated in the first part of Zechariah's song and prophecy. It's an expectation that God is fulfilling ancient promises to Abraham and David and that is the basis for people's hope. A hope that has a very real practical expression. Salvation means being set free from our enemies. But then in verse 76, the focus shifts specifically to what's uppermost in Zechariah's mind. John the Baptist, his son, who will go ahead of the Lord to prepare the way for him. And Zechariah addresses his son and says that he will be called the prophet of the Most High. His task will be to go before the Lord and to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. This part of the prophecy is specifically tied to to John the Baptist in a way that the first part is not. So some people wonder whether 
Zechariah or maybe Luke as the author of the gospel has welded two prophecies together here. The first bit, a general expectation that God would come in faithfulness to his promise to Abraham to bring a son of David to set his people free from oppression. And the second one basically focused on his son saying he would be the one to bring salvation to people in the forgiveness of sins. And people even wonder whether Luke is kind of reinterpreting salvation. The first bit, forgiveness, uh, uh, the first bit, salvation from enemies, that is reinterpreted to be forgiveness of sins because that is what John the Baptist is really all about. Whether that's the case or not, the fact remains that this prophecy combined gives us a pretty comprehensive view of what salvation means. It is deliverance from your enemies, deliverance from fear. Deliverance from past sins. Deliverance from present darkness. Deliverance from future death. If you want an understanding of what salvation comprises, you can look at Zechariah's prophecy and see it all there. And I want to think about these five aspects of salvation in these coming moments with you. Firstly, salvation in terms of being rescued from the hand of your enemies and from those who hate you. This is part of what God does for his people. God stands alongside us to defend us, to protect us, to vindicate us against our accusers, and to keep us safe. And yet, even as we talk about salvation in those terms, realism demands that we recognise it doesn't always happen that way. How many people pay the price for their faith in Christ with their lives or suffer persecution? Reports that 100,000 Christians are martyred for their faith every year are almost certainly greatly exaggerated. More accurate estimates range from between 400 to 9,000. Nobody really knows, but those numbers in themselves are horrific enough. People for whom believing in Christ doesn't mean protection from their enemies and deliverance from those who hate them. But let's recognise as well that persecution is not just something that Christians suffer. We don't have a monopoly on that. The majority of people murdered or executed by extreme jihadist movements in the past few months have been Muslims. Yet it's right that we remember and we pray for those Christian believers who are persecuted for their faith, asking that God would be their salvation. And that might mean that they are rescued from their enemies and delivered from the hand of those who hate them. But we remember as well the Apostle Paul writing to the Philippians in prison saying, I am confident that this will turn out for my salvation either by being released from prison or by God being honoured in the way in which I meet my death. God is the God of our salvation. That doesn't mean to say that we will go through life with everybody liking us. Far from it. There will be opposition. And even in this country we experience that, albeit to a very mild extent. Nevertheless, when we are in trouble, the God of our salvation is there for us to call upon him. He guarantees his presence with us, even if the outcome remains uncertain. How Luke understood Zechariah's declaration that God had come to save his people from their enemies and from the hand of all who hate them is a debatable point because 
Luke was writing his gospel in the aftermath of the complete destruction of Jerusalem and the defeat of Israel by their enemies, the Romans. I can't help wondering whether Zechariah's prophecy perhaps sounded a little bit hollow after all that. And yet as you read through the book of Acts, it becomes apparent that for Luke, the prophecy is fulfilled in the followers of Jesus. They refused to give, it, give in to intimidation. They powerfully witness to their faith when they are put on trial. They survive beatings and violent opposition. They are set free from prison on more than one occasion. Whatever happened to Israel, and that is a whole big package I'm not going to go into tonight, for Luke, God is the God who saves his people by delivering them from their enemies, and that is, in his eyes, those who are following Jesus. Those who stand up for Jesus will find that the God of their salvation stands alongside them. And that can be our confidence and faith. And that kind of is wrapped up in, with the second part of salvation because God only doesn't save us by rescuing us from the hand of our enemies. God enables us to serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness all our days. Salvation is about how we live and the attitude with which we approach life. Because the second thing from which God sets us free is fear. If enemies pose a real threat to us, fear poses all kinds of imaginary threats that can paralyse our capacity for living. You can be in perfect safety and security, in no danger at all, and still be controlled by a sense of insecurity and fear and anxiety. And God is the one who can rescue us from that as well. In his book, The Fearful Void, Geoffrey Morehouse spoke of the devastating effects of being governed by fear. He says, I was a man who lived with fear for nearly 40 years. To say this is not to suggest that I lived in a permanent sweat of terror. To live one's life in fear is something much less spectacular and much more commonplace in everyone's experience. It is to act for a great deal of the time from negative rather than positive motives. We hesitate to speak to strangers for fear of a rebuff, a small humiliation. We're loath to act generously because we fear that more may be taken from us than we really wish to give. We will not stand up and be counted in some small but important matter because it may cost us a security or more frequently perhaps an advancement. Gradually we become stultified, incapable of giving to each other, waiting instead for the next hostile move from another fearful man which must be counted with all the craft at our disposal for the sake of self-preservation. We are reduced in our ability to go forward and meet, recognise warmly and embrace life itself and all who share it with us. Fear can be seen as the most corrosive element attacking the goodness of the human spirit. Zechariah says God saves us so that we can live without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all of our days. That means that if we recognise and accept that God is in charge and God can be trusted 
and we are prepared to put his, our trust in us, his steadfast love which casts out all fear. We don't need to be governed by a negative perception about what might happen because we know that God is in charge of what will happen. And so what, what, what might happen is unknown to us and outside of our control, but it's not outside of the control of the God who is there for us, sovereign over all, and who loves us with all his heart. So if we can bring ourselves to trust him, that can be the antidote to fear. So instead of being governed by a negative perception about what might go wrong, we are enabled to do the right thing what is right for us to do as a person who has been set aside as holy to God, someone who belongs to God. Deliverance from fear entails having the gift of courage and confidence to do what you know to be right, even if there may be negative consequences or repercussions that may make you anxious, make you anxious or afraid. It's God who enables you to keep calm and carry on. There will still be things that trigger anxiety or, or fear within us. Of course there will. But deliverance from fear means that even though we might be afraid, we will still be able to think clearly enough to perceive the right course of action to take. And we will have the emotional strength to follow it through. So that if fear comes, it doesn't paralyze us or govern our response or our actions. But we know what we should do. And we do it anyway. If the God of your salvation is with you, then let no fear be your motto and your principle for living. But then in verse 77 we come to perhaps the more religious understanding of salvation in terms of the forgiveness of our sins. John the Baptist will go to prepare the way for the Lord and give people the knowledge of salvation in the forgiveness of of their sins. And that is about deliverance from the past. The problem with guilt is that guilt can make us hate ourselves for what we've done. But hatred is corrosive and indiscriminate. And if we hate ourselves, it's almost inevitable that we will end up hating others as well. So guilt places, at, places us actually in a cell of solitary confinement. We can't reach out to others because we're afraid of what they'll think of us if they know what we've done. We're afraid we won't be accepted. We're bound up in our own sense of regret and shame. And that can paralyze us as well. Forgiveness is God unlocking the door of the cell where we have been imprisoned by guilt and enabling us to walk away from our past and live life a different way in the future. And where people are trapped in a cycle of trying to make up for what they've done wrong, to atone for their own sins, which you can never do, God, with a simple declaration, sets us free. I forgive you. With all the authority of the sovereign God, with his complete understanding of what we've done and why we did it and our lack of excuse sometimes, he still is prepared to say, I forgive you. And there's no higher authority than that.
With those words, God has the power to sever the ball and chain that shackle us to our past so that we can walk away as people who have been set free. Our lives not dominated anymore by vain regrets, but by the knowledge that in Christ, despite of what we've done, we are forgiven. We are loved. We are accepted. We are set free. Our identity is not governed or determined by our sinful past. Our identity is governed and determined by our forgiveness and who we are in Christ. And that can release us into walking into the future without having to look over our shoulder all the time to see much, how much of the past we're dragging behind us. The liberating power of forgiveness is illustrated by that story of the paralyzed man who was brought by his four friends to Jesus. And he was able to walk out of the house on his own two feet, carrying his own bed, after Jesus says to him, My son, your sins are forgiven. That's the power of forgiveness. The liberation of forgiveness. Available to us through faith in Christ. Because that's why he came and that's why he died. That we might have the knowledge of salvation in the forgiveness of our sins. No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But Zechariah goes on to talk about deliverance from darkness as well. Talks about the rising sun of God's mercy shining on those who live in darkness. Salvation from past sin, salvation from present darkness. There is the darkness of feeling worthless, the darkness of feeling alone, the darkness of, of depression, the darkness of feeling that life simply isn't worth living, the darkness of being abandoned. What difference does having the light of salvation make in that situation? Well, if you are sitting in the darkness and a light appears, it means you're not alone. It means that help is on its way. It means that someone is coming to rescue you. It means that the darkness is not complete, it's not final, it's not inevitable. In this case, the light is the dawning of God's mercy from heaven, which may seem an age in coming, but nevertheless will come. As it did to Zechariah and Elizabeth in their decades-long wait for a son, the light of God's mercy dawning upon us in our isolation and our darkness to say, this is not how it ends. And God's light doesn't just shine on those who live in darkness. It also dawns on those who live in the shadow of death. Sometimes that can be a shadow cast by a past bereavement. Sometimes it's a shadow cast by the prospect of our own forthcoming demise. The recognition of our own mortality. Salvation as well is salvation from future death. And perhaps that is the ultimate salvation. Everything else enemies, fear, guilt, darkness, they are all very this-worldly. 
deliverance from death itself, salvation from the grave, the gift of eternal life, that is perhaps the ultimate salvation. Everything else is vitally important to us in that moment of need, but deliverance from death carries nothing less than an eternal significance. And that is God's gift to us in Christ as well. It's part of God's salvation because our God is the one who saves to the uttermost. And that means being rescued from death and being kept for eternal life. So that there is nothing to be afraid of here either. Because Jesus came to be born, to live, to die, and to be raised again. To assure us that death, the final enemy, has been conquered and overcome. And because he lives, we will live also. The ability to save ourselves from death is totally outside our own capacity or power. But God, in his love and in his grace and in his faithfulness and through his Son, guarantees life from death for those who put their trust in Christ. It's why he came. It's salvation to the uttermost. So whatever your situation, whether it is that you're struggling against people who aren't being very nice to you, whether fear is an issue, or or whether we're struggling with guilt, or a sense of being in the darkness, or, or fear of death, the light of God's salvation shines on the path ahead of you. And it will lead you into the way of peace. What does salvation mean? Perhaps the dictionary is wrong to offer two answers, one secular and one religious, as if the the two are distinct from each other. Zechariah's prophecy offers us a comprehensive perspective on what salvation is about. It is rescue from enemies. It is freedom from fear. It is deliverance from guilt. It is a light in the darkness. It is the promise of eternal life. John came to prepare the way for the one who would bring that salvation. The one whose birth we celebrate this Christmas time. Jesus, our saviour. Our protector. Our deliverer. Our confidence. The one who forgives forgives us. The one who sends his light into our hearts. The one who gives us eternal life. Whatever your situation, wherever you find yourself sitting tonight... The opportunity to put your trust in him is here. And if you do so, he will guide your feet into the way of peace until that day comes when we meet the God of our salvation face to face.